welcome once again to It Is Complicated, the podcast where we answer every single question with It Is Complicated, including the title of this podcast, which is also It Is Complicated. Hello, Dr. J, and hello, Max. Hello, hello Josephine. Hi. Hi. So we're doing this a little differently today. We have a wonderful guest, Max, who will introduce themselves as soon as uh, they've heard us do it because they've heard us do it before, and that might help. So usually I would ask our guests to introduce themselves first because I like to be a polite queer. But since we're doing it this way, I shall say, hi, everybody. Hello, Dr. J. Who are you and why? Hey, I'm Dr. J. I use they as a pronoun, which I always forget to throw in at various points. I gave myself the job title Harbinger of Change because I get to work for Fortworks, who are an amazing IT consultancy, and they allowed me to be creative with my job title. So why not be fabulous? I also, thanks to the New Zealand government, got to give myself my own gender. So I'm a transgressive, non-binary gender queer because why not be fabulous if you can do something more? What else am I? Oh, I'm a troublemaker and a hashtag queer nuisance, as if you couldn't tell, because branding. So, Josephine, when are you today? Did you say when, when am I today? When, when are you today? Oh, God, I'm in 2020, hence the quality of my humour and also mood. <laughs> Hi, my name is Josephine Barry. This is a special episode for a lot of reasons, because I'm about to out myself in another way. I have to change my introduction, Jay. Normally oh, I'd yes. be saying, yes. Normally, Max, what I would be saying is, hello, my name is Josephine Baird. I am an independent scholar, artist and activist. I'm probably no longer independent. I've been claimed. They didn't put a flag in me yet. But I, I know. <laughs> that image. Well, it I was consensual. <laughs> I said, OK, go on. Then. God, that's not going in. That's the first bit of it. <laughs> Yes, hello, my name is Josephine Baird. I am a scholar, activist, and artist. I like to make a spectacle of myself on the stage that was in a former life. Now I like to make a spectacle of myself by drawing queers and putting it on the internet. And I like to think of myself as a queer without portfolio, but the truth is I have a portfolio now, Jay. Max? I know, I'm so excited. I used so... to be a queer without portfolio because I was unemployed and now I am gainfully employed. Very <laughs> exciting. Gamefully employed almost. Wait. Good good pun. Good word play. I like that because yes, dear listener, I will be teaching or I am teaching about game design and it is a wonderful job and I'm absolutely thrilled that they accepted my application <laughs> because it's probably a first. I'm not used to having a job. I was trying to think the other day whether or not I've ever had a job like this. And I think the last time I had a job that paid anything like this was for about a year when I was working in an opera and that had a very definite end <laughs> that was that this on the other hand we'll see but yes wow. I am no longer a queer without portfolio which means I have to think of something else to say or just keep saying it for the fun of it and just to keep things normal for given value and normal my cat is screaming at the top of her lungs again she yeah. does this every time so maybe we should ask Max. Hi, <laughs> I'm Max Markovich. I use they, them pronouns. Who am I? I'm a freelance sign language interpreter by trade. I also do bits of access consultancy and a whole bunch of other stuff. My work history is massively complicated and convoluted bits of performance and lots of disability work in various ways. Very much an activist around being queer and disabled and really kind of focusing on how to get the most marginalized people the help that they need to 
access the world in the, the best way possible. But one of the things I wanted to bring up is how we met because we met at Queer House Party one time when you were dance interpreting. And that was at that point, we were like, oh my God, who is this queer? And they have to join the party. Would you like me to tell the story? Yes. So I think it was my second time attending Queer House Party. It was the third Queer House Party in lockdown. And I was rum drunk and isolating alone and had been alone for ages. And it was the first social thing I'd been doing in a long time. I put a nail in the wall, especially and went to the effort, which is quite a lot of effort for somebody like me to put a nail in the wall so I could hang my progress pride flag in my office behind me. Because normally being an interpreter, I work in a white void and that didn't feel very nightclubby. So I hung my pride flag and I got my fancy outfit on and I was very, very drunk. And I was signing along to various songs, not for anyone's benefit, just because partly as a wheelchair user who used to be a dancer, when I'm in nightclubs, especially when I'm drunk, I will start to like sign along with the songs and it's not really sign singing. I'm not really translating it. I'm just kind of expressing myself and it's just kind of part of dancing really because I'm quite limited in what I can do physically. So I think I was signing along with the Venga Boys, uh, classic, and um, I was suddenly spotlit for the entire audience, which I kind of wasn't expecting. I had shared my video, but I hadn't been spotlit yet and there were a lot of people there. So I wasn't sure if that would ever happen. <laughs> and then I got messages from the Queer House Party team saying, will you come and perform? And I said, well, I don't actually perform sign singing. I'm a hearing person, but I am a qualified sign language interpreter. And if you want to make your parties more accessible, I can come and work for you. And um, the rest is history. I was, I was on the team from the next week. I um, had lost all of my interpreting work when I had to shield and I had a month and a half with no work at all. And then suddenly got this job, but it was also my first ever queer interpreting job. And it was so liberating to have a job where I didn't have to kind of think, is the fact that I'm non-binary or visibly trans or visibly queer going to make people distracted or say stuff that's inappropriate or ask me really personal questions? That was just not an issue. And I got to dress however I wanted as long as it was appropriate for the interpreting side of the job. But I didn't have to wear like office wear. I could wear something that was more me, but that was appropriate for interpreting. It's very much changed my whole perspective really on how I represent myself as a queer person in the workplace. And has also highlighted the fact that people really need more trans interpreters because I get so many interpreting requests from people for trans specific events and they go, do you know any other trans interpreters? And I don't. If there are any of you out there, please tell me, please say hi. I'd really love to meet you. <laughs> I think that's such an interesting thing to talk about because obviously I've literally just gotten a new job and it's the first job I've had in a, a long time. And being openly trans in the workplace has been something I've had to consider well, for two decades at this point, it's terrifying to me. Even now, 20 years later, I'm still really, really nervous. Applying for any kind of job as a trans person. I think in one of our previous episodes, Jay, I talked about one of the reasons I didn't go into a particular career was because I thought there was no way to be trans in that career. Not in a way that actually would allow me to eat food and have a roof over my head like I could have like gone in and been like damn it I'm trans and I don't care I'm also no longer alive because I haven't been able to eat food or live in a house of any kind and even now it was really scary even though they knew who I was they knew my background and I was still nervous I was still terrified that this would be a factor and I couldn't shake it and I don't know why I think it's just that constant fear 
But to be in a workplace now where not only was that known prior to and was included in their conception, all my work that I'm going to be doing for myself, my research, is on trans and queer issues. So I'll be referencing and talking about this pretty much every opportunity. To have it so integral to what I'm doing in an environment like this, I'm almost terrified by the fact that it's actually happening. And Jay, I know you've been in a similar situation with this, where suddenly you're put in a position where you're no longer having to constantly be in clench in the workplace. My workplace, they're not just relaxed about me being non-binary, they openly celebrate people who are non-binary, people who are different. That's all just you, come and do your job and bring all of that stuff, bring all of that thinking along, which is amazing. And I think... It's interesting to hear how even as a freelancer, that makes a difference. It really does. And yeah, generally there is an issue. There's a knowledge gap in the interpreting community. And obviously the places that you're working are vastly different and it really depends on where you are. But to an extent, the people I'm the most myself with are my coworkers, as in the other interpreters I'm working with. But prior to lockdown, I had never had a coworker who had used the correct pronouns for me. And that's including all of the people I had specifically discussed it with and who I'd pointed out my pronoun badge on my lanyard and my trans flag and my pride flag. And then the first thing they say is the wrong pronoun without fail. It had never happened to me before lockdown. And then through lockdown, I've worked with some brilliant interpreters and I've also worked with some utterly baffled people as to why I have my pronouns in my Zoom name. Just really depends on where I'm working. But I think partly because I use a wheelchair, that is by far the biggest thing that people focus on in person. It will always outweigh the fact that I'm gender non-conforming. It will always outweigh any other thing about me. I'm sitting down and I brought my own chair. And that is a really big deal for a lot of people. So the fact that I have been in my flat since March and haven't been perceived as a disabled person unless I've brought it up means I haven't had to deal with that at all. So the pressure that's been taken off me from just not having to deal with all of the stuff that comes with being a wheelchair user and being visibly disabled, I've got a lot more assertive about asking people to be respectful and be understanding of who I am and please refer to me in the correct way and if you don't know what to say please just say my name or ask me but there is a massive lack of awareness in general with people but um, yeah specifically with co-workers it's definitely been a a thing Um, and I have a brilliant network of wonderful interpreters I know but they live literally all over the country and I might not ever see or work with them ever again but that is the magic of working online. I'm wondering if there's something about working online that allows for a particularly queer way of working because I've noticed that my work completely altered as soon as most people were doing certain things online. Like I ended up suddenly working as a captioner and it meant that I could survive in a way that I hadn't before. And then I got to work with queer people like Max and got to work with a whole bunch of other queer fabulous people who there is a good chance I would never have met because I'm not physically in the same country as either of you two. And often with many of the jobs I've been doing, I'm not in the same country either. And with the current job that I just got, I'm in the same country, but the place where I'm going to be working is on an island, but I will be teaching there from (laughs) this very room. And yet, because I'm here and because I was able to teach online with a camera, because I had very specific queer knowledge, which is being really flexible and being able to work in odd conditions in odd ways, I think my ability to do this job was greater. And that really was interesting to suddenly be so flexible. And I think it's because of being queer and working this way. 
the thing is we've talked about this before jay and we've talked about queer people often having to make connections virtually that the internet being what it was 20 years ago and now and the huge influx of social media spaces that because we're always looking for community we're always looking for someone like us because unfortunately our immediate social environment won't necessarily provide that or may not at all we look for community especially online we're always looking for each other so we're used to being flexible we're used to seeking each other out and i think we're used to being particularly flexible in how we socialize and how we meet and work together we also talked very recently you and i about being creative in work environments and doing things in a way that is different because no one's paying us to do queer art, right? Like we're all queer artists, all three of us. No one's going to go out of their way to pay us to do what we want to do. So we find a way to do it. We make it up as we go along. Well, no one knows how to work in this environment. <laughs> this is new for everyone. But one of the things that we're used to doing is adapting, adapting our working environment, adapting who we are, seeking each other out, helping each other out, hopefully. I mean, I know I'm being very optimistic socially right now. And of course, this isn't always true. And I caveat everything I'm saying with that notion. But I'm also the eternal queer optimist because I do find communities who are willing to help each other. I mean, my goodness, I have a job now. I'm beyond thrilled. It's huge for me. But I was being helped out for the last month by queers that I, oh, well, Jay, I've known for a very long time. The Queer House Party crew, I knew for about five minutes and they were welcoming me in and giving me a paid job when I had no money at all. And yeah, we were able to adapt and create queer social spaces. We were able to create new jobs for ourselves, create new opportunities. And I think that's because we're used to having to do that, which we should never have to get used to doing. But because we have that skill, when things go weird, we can do it in our queer little way. I think the skills that queer people learn socially absolutely translate into other forms of finding ways to work and support each other and continue other bits of your life that had to be face-to-face -face before and suddenly couldn't be. What I have considered a lot is how the disability community and the kind of broader people with access needs in general, whether they identify as disabled or not, lots of us kind of went, I've kind of been preparing for this for a long time like being stuck in the house for long periods of time and unable to go out and do things I've done that before and also a lot of people like myself who have mental health issues have been kind of living in a worst case scenario for <laughs> most of our lives so when a worst case scenario happens you kind of go okay I've thought about this this is what I can do to do my best to mitigate it that doesn't mean that we're fine but I think a lot of us felt a bit more prepared to deal with like a sudden massive shift in lifestyle but yeah, I absolutely think it applies to the queer community as well, just because survival skills is a thing we've got, because unfortunately we've had to have them. So I'm um, just anticipating disasters, and I've already thought about how I might plan a solution. And also, again, autistic skills, what I want as soon as possible is a plan and some organisation. And if no one else has got one, then I will just arrive with, like, you need to do this, this, this and this. So I am getting a bit of a reputation in certain workplaces. You're indispensable in those environments. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Having had the delight of working with you in numerous environments, your ability to do that is astounding, even to those of us who plan constantly in our own heads as well. Because I, too, rehearse conversations in my head constantly, actually, to the point of distraction. It does mean I'm quite good at debates and discussions and arguments, which is good for my job, but not so good for my, you know, needing to sleep. 
Okay, part of explaining the look on my face, just rolling back ever so slightly. What do you describe it first, Jane? Yeah. I have no idea what the look on my face looked like, but the look on my face was, I used to do that when I was in my majorly anxious moments. And one of the things of getting rid of my anxiety or getting my anxiety down to the point where it's much more manageable has been too quiet in that part of my brain. But I still have somehow retained the ability to plan very quickly, but I can turn it on and off, which has been great. The other thing that I will say is that should anyone want somebody who is organized and can build a plan and can execute a plan, especially around getting performers to do things, Max is that person. I've worked producing a festival, which Josephine will attest to. I've never seen anyone just go, right, here's the list of stuff that has to be done. And we're down to here. And these three things haven't happened. So could you start chasing these up? And here's the other 10 things that need to happen. I've never seen anyone do it. It's like, This stuff needs to be done. It's always said in a neutral tone and it's never pointing fingers and it's always done with beautiful grace, which is something that I completely appreciate of Max doing stuff. Again, it's turning into a love feast. I have definitely noticed that the way in which I organize things is not quite the way that other people organize things, which usually leads me to believe that I'm in the wrong because I know I'm not doing something the way other people do. But I had an entire childhood of being undiagnosed autistic and having to learn like social rules and what you will and will not be bullied for and like that has a major impact on the way you perceive literally any social situation there's two things that i really want to draw out what you're saying one is an incapacity for a human being to think that something is normal when it's not in the most sense of like normal being usual commonplace rather than normal being okay not see this is dangling modifiers we talked about this before (laughs) this is this notion of normal that we have is that it's always personal. Like, well, my experience is normal to me, so I'm going to assume it's normal for everyone. Kids do it when they're in really unusual or difficult circumstances. The way they survive is by making it normal. Like everybody's families, like we do that to survive. And then as social beings, we assume lots of things are normal because that's how we get by. When the truth is that, especially if you have gone through the experiences that we three to some degree have come through in our own unique ways but certainly have commonalities it will make you act a certain way that is normal for a given value of normal jay but is not usual and gives you certain skills and the way this was put best to me and i know i've mentioned this before i'm going to say it again was from a therapist who said to me one day that think about ptsd and certain experiences that they will give you abilities for me one of them is hypervigilance and the ability to plan very very quickly and to think out where possible dangers obstacles concerns may come and come up with solutions very very quickly being able to mitigate certain circumstances that's a really good skill to have being able to plan really quickly in a crisis really good skill to have to be able to organize really quickly and to assess social situations really good skill to have The only problem is if you're doing it all the time. And this is how she put it to me. She said, the thing about these abilities is it's like a superhero story. The superhero story being a person wakes up with superpowers. And if you're thinking of a movie, goes out and saves the world, end of movie. But that's not actually the narrative. The narrative is person wakes up with superpower, cannot control superpower, learns to control superpower, achieves goal and then the end of the movie is goes on with their life with the ability to use that superpower on specific occasions and that's how it was described to me 
your ability to do this, despite it coming from potentially a very unpleasant, difficult, challenging experience, is still a really good skill to have. And you are exceptional at it. The problem is if you are using it a lot, you will get exhausted. But when it's applied the way you do, you will be exceptional because most people don't have that skill. I only got my autism diagnosis this year in January. And, you know, I'd been 30 years without one, but was fairly sure for most of that time that I was probably autistic. And there's lots of autistic people in my family. And I've worked a lot with autistic people. I knew most of my friends are also autistic. You know, I was pretty sure. But I didn't get my formal diagnosis until this year. And I had a little period of time after that when I went, wait, but I'm a language services professional and it's my job to work out what someone means by what they're saying in order for me to interpret the meaning into another language. But that's always defined as one of the like things that people who are autistic find difficult. And I, it was like a really short amount of time that I thought about that and then went, wait, no, I've had 30 years of training and working out what people mean by what they say and reading tone and reading facial expressions and body language. And actually that puts me on equal footing with anybody else for understanding what somebody means by what they say. Because yes, that is a thing that, that I found difficult, but I've been practicing very specifically learning how to do it and how to ask when I'm not sure for 30 years. Yes. And then I laughed at myself for having thought it at all. <laughs> I was recently being um, assessed for autism. And one of the questions was about, do you find it difficult to read people's emotions or to understand how they're feeling in certain circumstances? And I said, I used to, I kind of learned not to. And they said, well, how did you learn? And I said, well, I studied psychology. I have a degree in it. (laughs) They tick a box on the form and you're (laughs) done. You should have seen it. They ticked a really big, you know, when you can see they're looking at you and they just have this clipboard. They write nothing for about an hour and then you say something and then all of a sudden, ah, scrub, scrub, scrub. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I, unlike everyone else in this conversation, do not have an autism diagnosis. (laughs) I'm supposedly neuronormative. I like the value of normative. Yeah. Yeah. For a given value of normative. And I know I'm not autistic, but it's also as far as I see, and this is comes from, what's the, what's the name of the trans person's book of no labels. Labels are bad. Labels are comfortable labels. That's it. Comfortable labels by Laura Kate Dale. Thank you. Um, 2019. Of course, you're going to quote. I know you're autistic. <laughs> but autistic you re- people are yeah. like, why could you not remember the name of the book? And I'm like, I could see the cover of the book. It's vaguely a greeny, bluey color. And it looks like some fabric. And it's got a clothing label on there. But that's about all I could get. You, you didn't need to know that because you had somebody who has an index in her head in the conversation. So Absolutely. <laughs> so I could give a vague description. One of the things that she talks about is it being like a spider's web of different traits. And there are some traits that are slightly on the autistic spectrum, but are also on the anxiety spectrum. So I have a real thing about the texture of clothing and I can only wear specific fabrics against my skin. Socks are the worst. I've got to wear specific socks. And when I was super anxious, it used to take me four hours to choose the socks for the day. Because if I got them wrong, I'd have uncomfortable feet all day and nobody understood that problem at all. Although both of you just completely nodding in a way that just says, this is completely normal. You've both got fidgeters, don't you? 
<laughs> Dear listener, we both brought up our fidgeters at the same time. I've actually upgraded. I started the conversation with an infinity cube. I've now upgraded to a fidget spinner in case anybody was interested. I brought other <laughs> big guns. I have a very large coin, which for those who cannot see it, is a replica of the kind of coin you get in the film John Wick. These are the markers ah. they use. It's really heavy and just really tactile. So yeah, when Jay says things like that, we just go, oh, let me get the thing you do all the time. Whereas I often play with the eraser or the rubber on my desk. See, notice how I translated that because I know that there are two meanings to the word and crossing cultures and crossing countries. You remember those things. Um, I've completely forgotten the point I was You were talking about the crossover of symptoms and it's totally true. Yeah. It's absolutely true that diagnoses are kind of made up. It's to kind of put somebody in a box so that you can then try and support them. But actually people are more complicated than that. And so many different diagnoses have massive areas of overlap, which is often why it's so hard to diagnose people. You know, is that anxiety? Is that autism? Is that ADHD? Is that something else? Working that out is really difficult because the diagnosis thing is people make them up to make sense of how humans are behaving or access issues that people are having. So it makes total sense to me. And it's definitely my experience that there is this huge crossover. So here's a question for you. As two people who recently have had a diagnosis of a particular type of thing, how does that help you navigate the world now? Or is that something that just allows you to shorthand your experience to somebody? That's a funny thing, because officially I haven't been given that yet. Although, amusingly enough, to come back to the point Max was making about, and I think this is relevant to your question also, Jay, when I was going to my assessment, the person who I'd never met had three stacks of paper. And I said, okay, what are we doing? And he said, well, we're going to assess you. Now, I haven't met you before. So we're doing this sort of broad assessment, which will look at traits that might be considered to be autistic, some that might be considered to be ADHD, you know, and other different diagnoses that are often diagnosed along similar lines. So for example, PTSD has a great number of characteristics that are very similar to autism characteristics. And of course, being autistic can often lead to you having traumatic experiences in a culture that doesn't understand you, which may lead to PTSD. And being queer does that too. So, you know, he said, yeah, these are the three things I'm looking at. And I said, ah, yes, because they're constantly being misdiagnosed for each other. I understand. Hmm. To which he put down one set of paper (laughs) (laughs) immediately. And I was like, oh, (laughs) was that the correct response? And he puts and then, down the second and set of paper the <laughs> and he's like, well, I think we'll run through this one just to double check. <laughs> so, yes, to answer your question, Jay, for me personally, because I haven't had someone yet officially say it, it's tremendously like any moniker, like any identity, it is complicated, much as Max said. I consider myself queer. I consider myself trans. Am I trans because I'm similar to all the other people who are trans? No. Um, Do I have a similar story in some respects? Do I use that word as a shorthand to some degree? Yes, because my experience matches so much with other people who use that word too. And I can understand it as a useful social thing to use to describe your experience in shorthand, much like you suggested, Jay. So when I say to people, oh, I'm neuronormative or I'm autistic, does give me a shorthand to explain certain sets of behaviors that they might read otherwise, either awkwardness or an attention to detail or an obsessive ability to recall what book you mean by the cover and that sort of thing. But in general, what it's done is it's given me a sense of myself 
and I can now understand my own habits and abilities better. And for me, that self-awareness is absolutely profoundly changed my sense of well-being. I'm better in myself. I'm more well knowing this about myself. I didn't expect it to have as big of an impact as it did because I was already really very sure that that was the case and I felt very confident in that and I had no reason not to think that. I was very anxious about the assessment process itself but like prior to even kind of being put forward for an assessment I already knew but I completely respect anyone who self-diagnoses or can't access a diagnosis because it's so hard to get access to a diagnosis especially as an adult especially if you're not a cis man for so many reasons but uh, yeah for me personally getting the diagnosis just opened up so many things because it meant that I could articulate why something is an issue for me in a way that I couldn't previously I could just say I find this specific thing really difficult to deal with but now I can say I'm autistic and I find this thing particularly difficult and people understand that so much better and it's given me a shorthand definitely for explaining things but also as a kind of preface for access needs it's really useful to be able to say I'm autistic and I'm very direct in the way that I communicate I won't be using subtext so if you're reading subtext into something I'm saying that's not coming from me please ask me if I actually meant that it was very useful and very validating and also has kind of caused me to kind of look more deeply into which other things that I hadn't previously identified as being part of being an autistic person living in the world without a diagnosis that have had major impacts on me throughout my life. And that has been incredibly helpful. Way, way, way more than I thought. And it's only been well, nearly 12 months. Definitely having the diagnosis was very helpful, but it's not something everybody can get, unfortunately. And especially people who already have other diagnoses that often overlap. If you have a diagnosis of ADHD, it's often really difficult to get an autism diagnosis because people, the services that are out there just won't consider looking at you because they go all of those symptoms are explained by this diagnosis you already have but that's just not the case your diagnoses aren't like pie just because you have one you can't have <laughs> you can have as many pies as you want i want all the pies i and actually Jane... no i don't i don't i don't want all the pies <laughs> i have more well, than on... enough pies at the moment <laughs> on that culinary note i love these conversations because they start in one place and they end another and i really enjoy talking with you max Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank and you Jay, thank you. Thank you so much for these lovely questions and talking about things I wasn't expecting to talk about today. And it's a real pleasure to be able to do that with you. That openness and ability to self-explore is really, really important right now. And I really appreciate that. So thank you both. And um, Jay, my question that I ask every week, Max, I apologize for this in advance the way we end every show is that i ask jay a particular question and the answer that jay will give me is shocking <laughs> and to which i will then give my usual response so that's how yeah. this goes uh, <clears throat> jay now that we've finished our lovely podcast what would you like to talk about next week i'm sure she's tweeted again i know that there's more stuff going on i mean there's the gra consultation she's going to have an opinion about which toilets i should go into isn't she? Because that matters to her because she's a rich fucking woman who's just got nothing else going on in her life other than just going off about which toilet trans people can use. Because JK Rowling has more money than God. And you still... think she could afford more toilets for us? Oh, absolutely. Why doesn't she just build extra? Why doesn't she just build an entire range of, of gender neutral 
disability friendly changing places toilets in every fucking place. Now that would be a great thing that we could talk about. I, I'd rather not. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we end the podcast, Max, every week, I swear to God. I also have to cut out the things that are libelous.